Well, let me begin by, by reading this week's scripture to remember again. It comes from 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10. And this is from the Good News translation of these verses. It says, But now I am happy, not because I made you sad, but because your sadness made you change your ways. That sadness was used by God, and so we caused you no harm. For the goodness that is used by God brings a change of heart that leads to salvation. Now I've titled this week's message, Called Out to be Pulled In. These two short verses from the Apostle Paul's letter to the early followers of Corinth speak volumes to how we are convicted of our faith, are convicted of our sin and the error in our ways, and with the sole purpose of drawing us closer to God. If you're not familiar with the expression called out, it means to criticize someone about something they have done or said, but more importantly, it's to challenge them to explain it. And depending on your own experience, that may or may not sound like a positive thing to be called out. Perhaps you've been on, let's call it, the uncomfortable side of one of these call outs. Perhaps you have someone in your life, a parent, a friend, spouse, or mentor, with whom you have that kind of relationship where you could safely and constructively call each other out. And we call that accountability. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But let's go back a few weeks and about 2,000 years to that gathering of Jesus and his disciples around the table, this Last Supper. And in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 14, Jesus tells us that he would be leaving soon, but he would ask his father to send an advocate. We studied this advocate, the Holy Spirit, a little more in depth on March 31st in a message titled, More Than a Wingman. And I encourage you to revisit your notes or consider listening to that message again. Uh, as with all of them, the link to the audio recordings is, is on the front of your bulletin there, so you can listen to them at any time. But John 16, 7-11, Jesus shares his own words. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, this is the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And there's that word again, convict. It has such a negative connotation, doesn't it? I immediately think of a criminal, a really nasty convict. So how are you supposed to feel comfort when Jesus asks his Father to send the Holy Spirit to convict you? And why would our Savior, as the scripture says, he didn't come to condemn, but to save, to redeem us? Why would he want to convict us? This is simple. Because more than anything, he wants a relationship with you. A relationship built on trust and faith and regular communication, which is prayer. God is perfect and sinless in nature, as is his son. He wants this relationship so badly, and he wants to be with us all the time, but there are times and situations that his perfect nature forces him to say, I won't go there with you. That's when he must call us out, revealing, reminding us of what is wrong and contrary to his hope and his design for us. And he must call us out, literally beckons us out of those places. Now, I chose this background slide with intention. Whether you view it as a spotlight or a beam of light from heaven or whatever, you can see that a single light is illuminating a space in the darkness. Friends, we are called out to be in the light. When you are in total darkness, especially if you're trying to find your way, literally find your way or trying to find something, the light is critical to your safety and to your success. Yet there are places in our lives that we operate in darkness, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of shame. We think these things that happen outside of the light aren't seen. 
Hebrews 12.1 tells us, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, typically when I share this verse, I do so with the intent of motivating. Even if you feel like no one notices your good efforts in your Christian life, God and this great cloud of witnesses that reside in heaven, they do. But did you hear that first part? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If we think the ugly parts of our lives aren't seen by God and these great cloud of witnesses because we have them so well hidden, let me call you out on that. Here's the thing about darkness of any kind. You cannot make darkness. You can paint something black, as I found out trying to accommodate my teenage daughter. If you paint a wall of a room black, not only is it ugly, but it takes a bazillion coats of paint to try to bring it back to something you can sell later. You can't make darkness. Darkness in itself really doesn't exist. Darkness is just simply the absence of light. Think about it. Darkness is the absence of light. Great example, this was about a year and a half ago when we had that full eclipse visible in this part of the country. Do you remember that? I don't know about you, but I was surprised by how incredibly dark it became for those few minutes. I mean, I was expecting the sun to be blocked, but I would think I was anticipating to be more like the darkness of a very overcast day, but without the clouds, which is what would make it really cool. Um, but what happened was an almost total darkness. It was almost eerie, wasn't it? The sun was still there, shining like it was, but it had been perfectly blocked so completely that there was now darkness. We cannot add or create darkness. When he calls us out, he's inviting us back into his light, into the light, his light, because his light destroys darkness. Darkness cannot exist in light. So now we're back to that word conviction. Let me start by telling you what conviction is not. The Holy Spirit does not convict us via our conscience. Uh, I like this slide. Remember him, Jiminy Cricket? Um, he was Pinocchio's appointed conscience. He was the official conscience. Conviction of a sin is not a sense of unease or a fear of divine punishment. These feelings, they're, they're commonly experienced in the hearts and minds of, of everybody. But true conviction is something different. And conviction of sin is not merely knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's not just an acceptance of Scripture's teaching about what sin is. You see, many people read the Bible and are fully aware that the wages of sin is death. That's spiritual death. That's what it costs you. They may know that no immoral, impure, or greedy person has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And they may even agree that the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Yet for all their knowledge, they continue to live in sin. They understand the consequences, but they're far from being convicted of their sins. The truth is, if we experience nothing more than a pain of conscience, anxiety at the thought of being judged, or an academic awareness of hell, then we never really truly know the conviction of sin, which actually is a, a good thing. <coughs> Go to the next slide. The word conviction, the word convict is translate, translated from the Greek word elencho, which means to convince someone of the truth to reprove, to accuse, refute. The Holy Spirit acts as a prosecuting attorney who exposes evil, reproves evildoers, evil and convinces people they need a savior. To be, to be convicted is to feel a loathsome, loathsomeness for our sin. This happens when we've seen God's beauty, his purity, and his holiness, 
And when we recognize that sin cannot dwell with him, when Isaiah stood in the presence of God, he was immediately overwhelmed by his own sinfulness. This is Isaiah the prophet. And when he saw the glory of God, he said, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. And he says, I, Next to that, I am horrible. To be convicted is to experience an utter dreadfulness of sin. Our attitude towards sin becomes that of Joseph, who fled temptation, crying out, How could I do this great evil and sin against God? We are convicted when we become mindful of how much our sin dishonors God. When David was convinced, convicted by the Holy Spirit, he cried out, Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil. And David saw his son primarily as an affront to God. And we are convicted when we become intensely aware of the wrath it exposes to our souls. That's important. Not the wrath of God, but the wrath the damage it does to our souls. So remember the Philippian jailer when he fell to Paul's feet and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was under conviction. He was convicted. He goes, this isn't right. I need something more in my life. He was convicted. He was certain that without a Savior, he would die. You see, when the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin, he represents the righteous judgment of God. The Holy Spirit not only convicts people of sin, but he also brings them to repentance. The Holy Spirit brings a light to our relationship to God. The convicting power of the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to our sin and opens our heart to receive his grace. And that's really the thing. It's not about knowing what's right and wrong, but then opening up to ask for, for that forgiveness, forgiveness. You know, it sounds not really fun, but the truth is we should praise the Lord for the conviction of our sin. Without it, there'd be no salvation. No one is saved apart from the Spirit's convicting and their regenerating work in the heart, the stuff that happens within us. The Bible teaches that all people are by nature rebels against God and hostile to Jesus Christ, and that's just because of our sinful nature. It says, Ephesians says we're dead in trespasses and sins. And Jesus said, and you know this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Part of that draw to Jesus is this conviction of sin. We are called out to be pulled in. This last one, this is probably what most of us think of when we think of being convicted. And you heard me say many times, God tests, but he doesn't tempt. He wants us to be good, do good, and experience the good. He doesn't want us to fail. I've also said that he convicts, but he does not condemn. He wants to pull you into the light so that you can be restored. He doesn't want to send you away or destroy you. He just wants to do that to the dark areas of your life. This image on the screen is how I view condemnation. It's in attacking the person and not the sin. Whereas conviction may leave you a little raw and uneasy, right? It is meant to restore you. Condemnation leaves you feeling like a horrible person, and that you're not. Has anyone here done something you're ashamed of? Don't look at their eyes. No. <laughs> um, you know that God says that those were bad choices, but you're not a bad person. In fact, God says you're his child, and the good father that he is, he continues to love you. Romans 8.1 reminds us there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And did you catch that word? Now. There is now no condemnation. And that is what is because, because of what was accomplished on the cross. You know, for a long time, I didn't like the word sin, but it came a lot more palatable 
when I understood it didn't mean committing heinous acts. It just simply meant making mistakes. And these mistakes or lack of perfection, because we're all imperfect, imperfect, they separated me from God. And they continue to separate me from God. No matter how hard I try, I will never be perfect. And no one's perfect and not even Christians. And don't let them tell you they are. I also thought the Bible was full of perfect people. People who only were qualified to have a relationship with God and have be talked about. But that's not true. The Bible is full of imperfect people. Moses, David, for example, you know, we consider them pillars of faith, these strong men, upstanding men. Uh, but they sinned. You know, and they still had this close relationship with God because God desired that with them and they opened themselves up to that re- relationship. This is really important. Perfection has never been a prerequisite for hanging out with God. Okay? Only desire to meet him and know him is the prerequisite. Perfection has never been the prerequisite. And no one apart from Jesus is perfect. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die for us. You know what it tells me? Therefore, God must love imperfect people. In Scripture, Romans 5.8 says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God knows that perfect people do not exist and we all fail. But God's love is bigger than your problems. God's love for you is bigger than your mistakes. And God loves imperfect people. He gave himself for me and you. And it's not just that God loves the whole world. He loves you. He gave himself on the cross for you and me, and he died for you. If you had been the only person in the world, Jesus still would have died for you. That is how personal this is. Do you believe that? Now, I'm tempted to end here, but I want to take a quick look at one more thing, and that's accountability. Change that. The reason I believe this is important to mention during this morning's message is because we are called to build each other up, encourage one another, and when necessary, call each other out. But I have a couple cautions I just want to share. First, the determination of what is right or wrong is sourced from Scripture. It's not a personal opinion. And we each aspire to be more Christian, that is, more Christ-like. And that means we should look at Him as an example of how we are to walk and talk and respond and act, not to others. No matter how good of a Christian we believe someone to be, our aspiration is to be more like Christ, not like another person. Second, the Bible, it's a tool. It is a weapon against evil and it drives away darkness. It is not as intended as a weapon against man. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures are breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We don't throw scripture at somebody in an effort to condemn them. We share it with them in an effort to turn them towards God. Third, that's the purpose of accountability is to turn others towards Christ. As is described in the books of Acts, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. We sang about this very thing this morning. We are called to encourage each other in this way from Hebrews. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another. So let's build each other up every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
bless one another. And although all humans are sinners before the eyes of God, he has in love given his only son in order to reconcile us to him. We have all lost our lives to Satan and believed his subtle lies, which is why Jesus had to come and literally buy us back to redeem us. Those who believe in God and have become true Christians are in a state of grace and forgiveness. The sacrifice of Christ, when it is accepted, makes you a son or daughter of the eternal. And then here comes one of those if-then promises we talked about a few weeks ago. If someone who is a sinner is willing to repent, then God does not limit himself concerning how much, how much disobedience he will forgive. In fact, Jesus, who loved Peter, stated that he, we should forgive others as many times as needed. Jesus said that every sin will be forgiven by God with one exception, and that is when a person willfully sins to be a sinner. And it says this type of sin is, of disobedience is not forgiven because a person willfully, not out of weakness or deception, refuses to respond to love and repent. See, repentance is that 180-degree turn, that sin in realignment with God, and that's the key. Not that you got off the path, but that you turn back. And he wants to save everyone. And therefore, he's very quick to forgive sinners. The only question is, how much pain are you willing to go through before you decide to leave him and not the devil? The truth is this. No matter how much a sinner you are, God always loves you and will always love you and will go th allow you to go through as much suffering as necessary so that you finally believe him and not his adversary. Just remember this, we all struggle with sins. Some more openly than others, but that is not for us to judge. So maybe you can agree with the statement by the Apostle Paul. He says, So I find this at work within me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making a prisoner to the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And I just want to close with this blessing from Hosea. He says, come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he may bind us back up. He calls us out so he can pull us in. Let's pray. Father God, life is good. It's not always easy. It's not always fun. And there are so many things along the way that distract and tempt, compete with our priorities. God, you are a patient God who doesn't want us to fail, that will allow us the time and the lessons we need to figure out that we need you in our lives every step of the way. God, it's uncomfortable to be convicted, to have that feeling within us that says, this isn't what I should be doing or saying or thinking or responding. But God, you do that for our, your good purpose. You tear us down so you can build us up. Help us to not only have a conscience that knows right from wrong, but a spirit within us that wants to repent, to turn around and face you and seek you. 
as we learned this morning in our Bible study, that whatever path, wherever you find yourself, God will meet you there, and he will carve out a path that leads you back to him and turn you towards it. God, if there's any of us in this room that are just really struggling right now with just a part of our lives that's in the darkness, whether it's a sin or a fear or whatever it may be, I pray that we are able to bring it into the light so that you can work through that and we can deepen our relationship with you, which is what we all want. God, you want a relationship with us and we know that you're going to be as happy for us to be in heaven with you as we are to be there. And we look forward to that day. And we thank you for all the lessons and the maturing and growth we'll do along the way. Amen.